Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. For our bonus episode today, we chatted with film critic Beandria July. She chatted with us about what a summer movie is, how it's changed over the years, and what's on her box office radar this summer. Stay tuned. so much for joining us again oh thanks for having me i'm so happy to be here yeah we're all excited to hear your thoughts on summer movies so what are your thoughts on the movies of summer 2019 in general so far from your perspective has the landscape changed from past summers yeah that's a great question i mean i think that um it really seems like this summer is sort of a watershed for the idea that there are no longer summer movies like i think obviously for years that's been you know there's summer movies there's christmas movies but it feels like now with the influence of streaming like it really doesn't matter as much when a movie is released in my opinion and you know the everyone's sort of bemoaning the box office going down um and of course the big winners are always the remakes and the reboots and endgame the superhero movies um but it's been a great summer for indie films um and um, some of my favorites have been The Farewell, um, which is an amazing movie, um, and has been doing really well in the box office for an indie movie. I think it's made like $4.5 so far, which is like huge for, it's only been out for three weeks. So, um, and I think that's the same thing that Last Black Man in San Francisco made, and it's been out for a couple of months. Um, so those are two real lights in the summer for me. I, I enjoyed Booksmart also. And um, I enjoyed the Maiden documentary. Have you seen that? I heard, I heard about it. Yeah. Yeah, that was at Sundance too, right? It I was. didn't see it there. Um, but I saw it here and um, it was really enjoyable. It's just women boating the sea, like traveling around the world Ooh. and like teamwork and all the things they went through to raise money. And It was the first all-female crew to sail around the world, correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah. So that was really interesting. Um, and in the audience that I, I saw it at um, the Arclight and the people who were in there were like really gung-ho, like cheering and stuff. <laughs> I was like, wow, I've never been to a documentary that roused people this much. Wow. But um, <laughs> yeah. And um, I enjoyed um, Always Be My Maybe, the Ali Wong, Randall Park um, comedy rom-com I thought was really enjoyable. I mean, you know, it's sort of um, the Netflix brand of, of, it's been, it's sort of the Netflix brand of romantic comedy. So, you know, um, it's, you know, follows in that suit. Nothing really surprising happens, but um, I just enjoyed it. It was very satisfying. Um, I loved, mainly because of the chemistry between Randall Park and um, Ali Wong, I thought. It's really great. So, Yeah. I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about what a summer film has kind of meant in the past versus now. I mean, you're talking about Always Be My Maybe. That, I feel like, in at least in Los Angeles, there were so many billboards for that, but it was on Netflix, which is really interesting. And I feel like sometimes summer films um, are the first, like, Oscar contenders that we see of the year. Yeah. If you could talk about just, I don't know, your thoughts on that this year kind of versus last year. And- yeah, I mean... 
summer movies tend to be the movies that the studios think are going to be huge you know like they're prime real summer is prime real estate for releasing a film so um that's kind of what i think of when i think of the term summer movies at least especially for the bigger budget films right um i think that's maybe less so true with indie films um but always be my maybe is a great example because um they did a lot of, they did a theatrical release for that. And usually Netflix does sort of a lip service to theatrical releases to qualify for awards, but they actually did a real theatrical release for it and, and um, put it in several cities. And I went to a screening and, um, you know, it was packed and it was, um, you know, I think like, especially the Asian American community was really, really rallied behind the film. Um, and you could see that and you could feel the excitement in the theater it was like and that was another example of a screening where people were really pumped up and kind of cheering at their um, favorite moments. And yeah, I'm curious, you've kind of mentioned like the reaction in the theater itself. And as streaming becomes a bigger part of like the film culture, I guess, for you personally, what do you find the difference or what do you find the difference to be between experiencing a film in the theater or experiencing it at home while watching on streaming? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think people make a big deal out of this and it's not as big a deal as people think. I mean, you know, with uh, streaming, you have like the theater equivalent is Twitter, I guess, um, you know. And I find myself now, like, that being, like, one of the first things I do after I see a movie is to go see what particularly people I follow have said about it. Um, and then going and looking up what people have written about it and, you know, just seeing if I agree, if I disagree. Um, like, I feel like actually one of the good things about Twitter is it's made it more kind of normal to have these conversations about film in ways that we maybe didn't have before. And, you know, how Jordan Peele, he tur his, fil his films turn, like, just everyday people into film critics for, like, weeks. You know, like, what's your theory on the red and the strawberries? What's that, like, you know, hidden symbiology? You know, like, people will tweet, you know, people who don't normally really care that much about movies in a deep way will automatically just start really caring you know and um I think a lot of that happens because of Twitter but also because of people like him who give people a reason to go to the movies um but yeah I think different movies do different things you know like always be my maybe was actually great as a streaming like I've watched it a few times since it came out and I wouldn't have done that if it was in the theater um and crazy rich Asians I saw in the theater um, that didn't have a streaming release, and I think, and that did really well too. I mean, that was a huge success. So I think we're all still trying to figure out what's what, but I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. So you've mentioned that you noticed a focus on platonic love and relationships, as seen in Booksmart and The Farewell, Last Black Man in San Francisco, and Late Night. Can you tell us a little bit more about this theme and why you think we're seeing this in so many movies right now? Right. Yeah. This is one of my personal soapboxes just about cinema in general is, um, you know, obviously like throughout time, like the romantic arc of a movie has been very key. Right. You know, it's like you couldn't have a movie if there wasn't, you know, a love interest in it, a romantic love interest. And I think that um, I've just had my eye out for 
um, stories that focus on the different kinds of relationships, um, because obviously that's not the only one. (laughs) Um, And I feel like it's really very untapped um, territory in terms of storytelling, because, for example, with The Farewell, like that movie made me miss my grandmother, you know, and it, um, it made me, there's so many different aspects to like the relationship you have with your grandmother that is so unlike any other relationship and so important, you know? Um, and I mean, just personally, I'm of the belief that it takes a village of relationships, you know, for, for you to be happy. Um, and that you shouldn't really put all your eggs in one basket. Um, (laughs) um, that, you know, we need all kinds of relationships in our lives. Agreed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, like, I think that, um, we've seen a bunch of movies this year that have really delved into like more the nuances of those relationships. And, um, so yeah, last black man in San Francisco, I wrote a piece for hyperallergic.com about sort of how, um, that movie is doing the quote unquote bromance in a whole different way. And specifically for black men, there haven't really been very many movies that, um, have dealt with bromance in a serious way. They've all been comedies like, um, you know, ride along, um, which is like a very different movie than <laughs> the last black man in San Francisco. And, um, and that, that movie in particular talked, um, it, it kind of presented like a great model of how to like, think about relationships that aren't based on toxic masculinity. But it wasn't like, you know, demonstrative, it was just them being them, it, they didn't really make a big deal out of it. But um there was no romantic arc in that movie whatsoever. And I really noticed that because that's so rare. Um, I wouldn't even say for black movies, but particularly because of like how historically black men have been portrayed in cinema, that's really notable because usually there's always something like that sexualizes them in some way. Um, And again, I'm not saying sex is bad. (laughs) Definitely not saying that. I'm just saying that, um, you know, in terms of storytelling, there's like a lot more room to get into. In a lot of ways, it's harder to do those movies, right? Because you don't have the the hot bedroom scene, you know. Um, And another one, um, also with um, teen girls, um, last summer, actually, there were a ton of movies, mostly indies that came out about teen girls. Um, I wrote something about that for The Hollywood Reporter. And this summer, there have been a lot of those movies, too. And Booksmart is probably the most um, well-known of that. Actually, I just saw that they decided to re-release it. And it came out, it's back in theaters as of a week ago. Um, And this is the first day of August. So, um, yeah, I saw Olivia Wilde tweeted about it. Like, I think it's just going to be in Regal Cinemas. But that whole thing where they were like it was a failure because it only made $10 million this first weekend, I didn't, I truly didn't understand it. It was like, um, and again, this is the whole influence of streaming on people's movie going activity. Like people didn't see it. um, A ton of people didn't see it the first weekend, but it made like $25 million, you know, and it had like a $6 million budget. So that is a very good debut film debut film film debut for a first time director you know um for two relatively unknown stars um that are women yeah yeah i mean it was a success i don't understand why people are saying it wasn't um so i think a lot of our like ways of judging success and talking about how a movie's doing are 
need to shift. Um, but it's funny that it always seems to happen with, you know, those movies, you know, that are perceived as underdogs or whatever, for some reason. Um, but I thought that was a really solid movie, you know, and it, and it was the heart of it again was the friendship between the two girls. And I really appreciated how they were like each other's hype woman. So yeah, that's kind of something I'm exploring. I need to actually write something about this whole platonic relationship theme in movies. So yes, we'd love to read that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well then uh, curious, we love reading your reviews. Who do you turn to when you want to read reviews of film? Who are some of your afraid of favorite critics? I really liked this. I think it was a couple, maybe. Yeah, it was not too long ago. I like Anne Hornaday from the Washington Post. Um, she wrote this great piece about missing sex scenes in movies, which I I also actually really liked. Um, when I want to see a movie with sex in it, I think there's actually like a lot of room for improvement of how those scenes are shot and how they're thought about. And so she um, wrote a great piece about some of that. Um, I, um, you know, I'm a big... Wesley fan, um, Wesley Morris from New York Times, like every other person. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, I, um, I feel like that's one of those questions where I don't, I just go and read it, but I don't always. Oh, I love um, Inu Kang at Slate too. Aisha Harris, she used to be at Slate. She used to have a great podcast called Slate Represent. Um, now she's at the Times and she writes mostly about TV now. Um, yeah, those are a few. So we'll end with our rapid response segment, three, two, one, action. Um, three, your favorite, most influential, memorable film. Well, you know, I'm influenced by many, many films. Um, I'm really interested in the kind of like therapeutic aspects of film, like film comfort food. So I would say this is like my film comfort food, which is um, a very, um, a movie from the 80s called Fast Forward. Have you ever seen it? Yeah. It's actually directed by Sidney Poitier, which is funny because if you saw the movie, you'd never think that. But because <laughs> it's, you know, it's a very B movie, but it's sort of like I feel like in the 80s, B movies were what are like what A movies are now. <laughs> like B movies weren't as bad in the 80s, I don't think. But it's a dance movie about a group of kids from Sandusky, Ohio, who go to New York to make it biggest dancers. And so there's a lot of dance routines in it. (laughs) Um, But it's like my sister was obsessed with that movie when we were growing up. I don't know why. I think it was because we grew up in Ohio. We grew up in Dayton, Ohio, not Sandusky, which is the other side of the state. But um, and we always had this like New York kind of fantasy, I guess. So I watched that movie like hundreds of times in my childhood. And I go back and watch it every now and again just for like to review the routines, <laughs> which I know, um, and, you know, I do them badly, but it's fun. And it's just a great, um, it's just a solid movie about, you know, an underdog overcoming, you know, their underdogness. I'm a big fan of an underdog in general and also in a movie. And then when I found out later that Sidney Portier directed, it was like the sixth, seventh or eighth movie that he directed. Um, and you know, it felt like this is a movie that was offered to him and he wanted to direct, so he decided to do it, but it wasn't like a passion project of his. Um, <laughs> but he did a great job, I thought. Um, so yeah, fast forward. It's one of my faves. Two, dream person you want to work with. I don't know. I guess I'll just say um, 
Jane Fonda, random. I'm like obsessed with Jane Fonda right now. I don't know why it's like, I mean, she's a legend, but um, I got really into her when I watched her documentary that was on HBO and actually got nominated for an Emmy, which I was like really happy to see Um, because it's such a good documentary and her life is like so expansive. I mean, she's lived like 10 lives, you know, Um, and she does so much like community activism work even now, you know, Um, and her whole story is just like great. And she's I think she's 80 something and she's still working and she produced nine to five. A lot of people don't know that it was her idea and she got it made. Um, It wasn't just that she starred in it. Um, So, yeah, I'm a big fan of her. One best advice you've ever received. My friend, a a really good friend of mine named Suze, she says that um, yes means yes, no means no, and maybe means no. And I kind of like that clarity of like, if you're not sure, then it's a no, which I guess applies in many different situations. And action, what are you most looking forward to right now? I'm looking forward to going to TIFF. Um, (laughs) I I got media accreditation to go there for the first time this year. I've never been to Toronto. Um, So I got to buy a blazer or something. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Something. (laughs) Um, Are there any films you're looking forward to in particular seeing there? Um, I want to see the Eddie Murphy movie. I'm curious to see what he's doing. And Titus um, from the Kimmy Schmidt is in it also. I found out, so I'm excited to see that. They haven't announced the full lineup. Um, I do want to see Harriet also. I'm really curious to see. I love Cassie Lemons. I should have said her about who I want to work with. She, I would love to work with her. She's amazing. Um, she made Eve's Bayou. And she hasn't really had the career that she should have had for her skills and her talent. But I'm glad that she's getting these big movies now. Um, so I don't know. I'm not sure how that's going to be, but I'm hoping that she's doing some interesting things with it. And um, yeah, those are two that come to mind. And where can people follow you? Yeah, I'm I'm on Twitter at Beyondria.com. All spelled out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are awesome. Right back at you. You're awesome. (laughs) You can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos are by Megan Cafferty. This podcast is produced by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell.